0: Halloween and the stars are out. Everyone turn up your volume and turn down your lights. The twilight beacon begins transmitting now. Jedediah D. Blackwell here, coming to you from the Twilight Beacon, here in the American Southwest. Tonight, we celebrate Halloween with an expanded show featuring our favorite Halloween episodes from the Golden Age of Radio. These stories are the perfect listening experience for the night when ghosts and monsters come to your home and knock on your door. So make sure your candy bowl is full before proceeding. Our first story for this Halloween aired on the radio program Quiet, Please, on Halloween in 1948 and is titled Calling All Souls. This is the tale of a man sentenced to death, spending his last lonely night in a cell. As it happens, the night before his execution is Halloween. And on the night when spirits like to mingle with the living, his cell becomes much less lonely than before. And now, Calling All Souls, as heard on Quiet Please, Halloween Night 1948. Quiet Please.
1: Quiet, please. The American Broadcasting Company presents Quiet, Please. Which is written and directed by Willis Cooper, and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, please, for today is called Calling All Souls. I tell you what happened last Halloween, or All Souls, or All Hallows, or whatever you call it in your part of the country. I bet you can't guess where I was. Well, I was a couple of places where I started, I was sitting in a tight little room in a great big house. You ever been west? Well, you know when you cross the Mississippi River on the Santa Fe from Illinois to Iowa, about four or five hours out of Chicago, Fort Madison, Iowa? Ever notice that great big place right alongside the riverbank to your right? The big high walls and the towers and the big gates? That's right, the Iowa State Prison. That's where I was last Halloween, in a little cell. Oh, very comfortable. All by myself, waiting, and not much more time to wait. Sure, the death cell. I was just sitting there playing solitaire on the edge of my bed, trying not to think of what was coming up, and thinking of nothing else but that. I was pretending I paid the house $52 for the deck and the house would pay off $5 for every card I got in the top row. I was $32 to the good this particular hand. I didn't hear anybody come up. I didn't hear anybody except the guard walking around till this voice spoke to me.
2: Red 9 on the 10 of clubs,
1: Lewis. Oh. Hello, Delbert. Yeah, that's right. difference. He said no. It's tough, Delbert, when I didn't do it. It's tough on me, too, Lewis. Yes, but they're not going to hang you. I begged him to give you a two-week stay at least, but he said his conscience wouldn't let him.
2: Conscience, huh? He said if he felt I could turn up anything at all in two weeks,
1: he'd be tempted to give you the benefit of the doubt. You've had three stays now. Could you turn up anything? Lewis... Everything I could. I know. But I didn't do it, Delbert. I know you didn't. But proving it. You want to play cards? I guess I don't want to play either. <laughs> well, I've done my very best, Lewis. My very level best. I know, I know. It's pretty tough on me, though. Ain't it? it certainly is. No. Hope at all? No hope at all. No witnesses? Plenty of motive? Your fingerprints all over everything? I remember. Only I didn't do it. Who did? You got any idea, Lewis? No idea at all. I thought maybe... I just opened the door after I'd knocked a dozen times. I just opened the door. And they were on the floor, I told you. I know. And I was so shocked. You know, I couldn't help it. I tried to... That's how I got the fingerprints all over You told me. I... I admit I didn't like Harris. I didn't go for Etta very much either. But I didn't kill him, Delbert. You told me. I, I just went out there to ask him to let me have however, however much he could of that $2,000 he owed me for the pigs. You should have made all those statements about how you were going to get the money or else. It's... I know it. He shouldn't have gone through his desk looking for the money either.
2: I don't know why the Dickens you did that.
1: Well... I don't know either, but I was... I said I was shocked. I just thought this was a good way to get the money, if I could find it. Nobody would know, I figured. I knew if I didn't get it then, I'd never get it. They were lying there on the floor. Lewis, listen, it was pretty hard to convince a jury you didn't do it with them lying on the floor and you going through the desk and blood spots on your suit and everything. I know it, Dubber. I was crazy to do it. But I didn't murder him. I know that, I told you. Delbert. Are they sure enough gonna hang me? Unless. Unless what? They discover new evidence. Where are they gonna discover that? They'll have to do it awful fast. Where are they gonna discover it? You tell me. There isn't any more evidence. Whoever really did it covered his tracks too good. I'll say he did. Oh, you smooched it up fooling around. Oh, no, I gosh, Delbert, I was just trying to see if I could help. I'm seeing if you could find the money, Harris owed. Well, I
2: know it was foolish. But... Honestly, Lewis, now, you wouldn't expect anybody in his right mind to believe your story. But would it's you? true,
1: I tell you. I know it's true, but I couldn't make the jury believe it, or the governor. How do you know it's true? What? How do you know it's true? Why, I just know it, Lewis. I've seen murderers before, you know. You... Don't think I'm a murderer? Of course not. Delbert, don't you really think there's a chance of uncovering some new evidence? Really? I think the only people who saw the murder,
2: the only people who know who did it, are Harris and Etta themselves. But they're dead. That's right. They're dead, Lewis. Look, uh, when I stopped in for her, I... you want me to ask
1: Father McIntyre to come round and see you now? Thirteen steps up, with your hands fastened behind you. Thirteen steps. Stop and turn around. The man says, stand here. Look down the thirteen steps at the reporters, the doctor with a stethoscope hanging around his neck. Feel a man tying your feet together. Feel a floor give a little underfoot. See how the man stays away from the little trap door, reaching out to make the rope tight around your ankles. Listen. Father McIntyre's voice in your ear. A little rustling behind you and a black hood over your head and you can't see anymore. But you can feel... Feel the rope as it brushes against your neck a little hairy and creepy crawly on your skin. The weight of the knot, nine turns on your shoulder. floor gives a little underfoot. No! I can't, I, I can't. I thought I didn't do it. I tell you, I didn't do it. All I could think of was what my lawyer said, what Delbert said before he got up and opened the door and went away. The only people who saw the murder... The only people who know who did it are Harris
2: and Etta themselves.
1: And Harris and Etta knew I didn't do it. Maybe they didn't know who it was that did it, but they did know that I didn't do it. Maybe they didn't. And maybe they did. Maybe they did know. Maybe they could tell me. Maybe they could discover some new evidence, the way Delbert put it. Maybe they could tell me where to go, who to look for, what I'd find. I could tell it all to Delbert. He could go tell a governor and I'd get a stay.
3: Maybe the evidence would be good enough so i So they let me go. Maybe they wouldn't hang.
1: But Harris is dead. And that is is dead. I saw them dead on the floor of their house when I went... And they accused me of murdering them. They found me guilty. I'm in the death cell waiting. Harris, Hedda, don't let me die. Don't let them. Hedda, Harris, have mercy on my soul. And when I heard the bell tolling somewhere in the distance, I remembered. I remembered what night this was. This was All Souls Night. This was the night when the souls of the weary dead walked the earth again. I remember when graveyards yawn and tombs give up their dead. And the sound of the bell tolling away in the darkness of early evening. Calling... and after. If my soul had to leave my body then, why could it not leave my living body for a while and go seeking after the others that stepped from the tomb this night? The souls of the weary dead, the souls of the unhappy dead, the murdered, the kindly souls that knew. Then, gone for a moment. I was exhausted and weak. I closed my eyes and the sound of a distant bell faded out as I thought. Why can't it be possible, I thought. All these things are not mere superstition. There's some foundation in every belief, I thought. I, I can't die. I'm innocent, I thought. And only those two know the truth. Repeated again to myself, calling all souls, and I stood up. I stood up in that brightly lighted, sorrowful place, and as I rose, I turned to look behind me, and there, on the bed, still in an attitude of despair, sat my body. a flash of darkness, the place faded away, the stone walls and the iron bars and the bare narrow bed, the man in prison uniform seated motionless on its edge. And I stood alone in the darkness of a place I knew. Tall marble shafts gleaming faintly in the starlight, curving gravel roadways hedge bordered. and the scent of moldering flowers in the darkness. A dry rustle of a weather-beaten flag at the head of a low mound beside me. And loneliness. All aloneness pressing inward upon me like a living thing. The eve of all souls. And suddenly, quietly in the cold shadows, little, little whispers of innumerable voices. Voices of the wandering souls that hastened past me, seeking their dusty desires across the face of the world they once all knew. And then a voice, speaking to me in the dark. Speaking my name in the darkness. Calling me. Lewis! And another voice.
4: Lewis!
1: And I knew I had won, for these were the voices of the two they said I murdered.
4: Why, of course you didn't, Louis. Of
1: course you didn't. And a little child, a little boy, ran up in the darkness and took my hand and laughed to hear my name.
4: Do you remember little Tommy, our little boy that died when he was
1: sick. And I remembered. And in the darkness I saw many another I'd all but forgotten. Charlie Cullum that was killed at Romaine in the Argonne 30 years ago. Albert Newhouse, my Boy Scout comrade that drowned so many years ago. Grace Williams who died at her husband's hand. Crowds and crowds of the ones who had gone before, spending this, their brief holiday, on their well-loved earth. And I, the only living soul among them, spending my brief moment with them to seek my life from them. On All Souls Eve a year ago, I said, help me. And Etta answered me.
4: What is there we can do now, Louis?
1: You know I didn't kill you, Etta.
4: Of course.
1: Of course. They're going to hang me for it. You didn't do it. How can I prove it? Delbert said if we could find
2: new evidence... There's plenty of evidence, Lewis, to be found. Where? How?
4: Why, let me see. He found the money.
2: That's why you couldn't find it, Lewis. Uh, But if
1: he found the money, it must be gone by now.
2: No, he has some of it left. But
1: what good does that do?
2: Why, there's a list of the numbers of the bills somewhere. They looked for it. They they couldn't find it.
4: Have them look in the bedroom, Lewis, behind the third drawer in my chest of drawers. I know where it is. It fell down there.
1: Oh, that, that's wonderful. That... But what good will it do now? Unless we know... Unless you tell me... There's plenty of
2: evidence, Lewis, if you'll just look for it. He ripped his coat on the catch of the living room door. There's threads there that could be identified. You know who did it? You know who did it?
1: Yes, we know.
4: Yes, we know.
1: Then tell me. Tell me and I'll see. Delbert will see that he confesses. Look. uh, I tell you they're going to hang me for it.
5: Do you hear? Tell me.
1: Oh you still hate me. And you haven't learned mercy since, since you, you're going to let me die because you hated me while you were alive. You're going to carry it beyond the grave. You're going to keep it to yourself and let me hang.
2: You hated us,
1: Louis. Yes, I hated you and I hate you now. Ghost or no ghost, soul or no soul, I, no, no, Harris, have pity on me. It's all over now. There's no use hating me. Don't you hate the man that killed you? Don't you? No, Lewis, no.
4: We don't hate him. Don't you hate
1: me? You're going to let me die. You know I'm innocent. You're going to let me die just because we didn't like
2: each other on earth. Lewis, listen to us. There's no such thing as hate anymore with us. Then why don't you give me a chance to live? Go back, Lewis. Go back to your body. Go back. Go back. To die.
4: Dying isn't so bad, Lewis. You don't see any unhappiness among all these souls, do you?
2: I don't want to die. You'd rather save your life for a while at the expense of somebody else's
5: life? But I'm not guilty. And he is. Go back, Lewis.
2: Go back.
1: I won't go back till you tell me who killed you.
2: Listen to me, Lewis. You're tampering with things that... Things that you have no right to know. Your soul has left your body before it's time. You have come upon secrets that no living man should know. Your body is waiting for you. Go back to it while there's time. While there's time. It
4: is only this one night that souls may walk the earth.
2: And when morning comes, well, when morning comes, if you are still here... Louis, I can make you no promises
4: Go back, Lewis Tell
2: me the man's name No, Lewis No, it's none of your affair
1: N- None of my affair Don't you understand what I said to you? They're going to hang me None of my affair, listen
2: I... There was no need for you to send your soul out seeking us, Louis. I don't get that
4: We have been waiting for this night, Louis. Well? Tell him,
2: Harris. He, he will have to come with us now.
4: Yes, that is the law.
2: You should not have come here. Louis. there is still time, but only a little time. If you go back now... I won't will... go back. I won't go back until you tell me. You
4: have no right here, you know, Louis. But
2: I'm here. And now it is too late. Yes. You will have to come with us. Where are you going?
4: Tell him, Harris.
2: We are going to visit the man who murdered us. You what? I told you there was no need for you to come here, Lewis. We have a way of taking care of this man.
1: I don't know what you mean.
4: Haven't you ever heard of haunting, Lewis?
2: Come with us now, Lewis. No.
4: You must come.
2: You're really going to haunt him and make him confess? We are going to appear to him, Lewis.
4: What he will do, we cannot say. But
2: when he sees oh, well, us... Well, then
1: I'm going back to the prison. No.
4: no. I'll go
1: back and I'll call the warden. I'll get Delbert. Tell him that there'll be a confession. Delbert will get me a stay of execution. Then when he confesses, I'll be... <laughs> Who is it, Harris. Come with us and you will see. No, I'm I'm going back to the prison. I told you, get things all set up.
2: No, you changed your mind too late, Lewis. Too late? Why, I... No, Lewis. You have meddled too much. You have gone too far. The souls of the living have no place here. But you have come.
4: We told you to go back while there was time, Lewis.
2: Yes, but... Now you must come with us. No, No, I want to go back. Come,
1: Lewis. High, high up over the face of the sleeping, starlit world with the tiny lights of the living far below us. The broad peaceful farmlands, the sleeping cities, the broad breast of the great river far below us. The universe throbbing with strange, compelling song. And above us, around us, the sense of a million souls. A million, a myriad, a countless multitude returning joyously to their single night upon the earth they loved. And I looked up in the clearness of the haunted night. And above me, the endless pathway of the Milky Way glowed with a strange splendor letter pluck my sleeve. The
4: pathway of the souls, Lewis. The way we all return.
1: And I saw the features of the ones I had loved. Of strangers. Of men and women and little children. Of boys in ragged uniforms. Of bearded ancients and smiling babes in their mother's arms. And on their faces in a sparkling night an expression of awful eagerness. Of long-awaited realization that this night they would once again rest upon the mortal earth. And I... Even I, the only living soul amongst all the multitude of the dead. Even I felt an overpowering desire to set my feet again this moment upon the reality of earth. And I closed my eyes for a moment. And when I opened them, we three were in a room. And on a bed there was a sleeping man. This is the man.
4: This is the man.
2: Who is he? Go and look. I... No.
4: Go and look.
2: I don't want to... Go
1: and look, Lewis.
4: You must go and look,
1: Lewis. He lay there, sleeping as innocently as any child. And covers were drawn up about his face as if he were shutting out some childish fancy of boogeyman in the dark. But I knew him for a wicked, guilty man the man who held my own life in jeopardy. Look at him, Lewis.
4: Look at him, Lewis.
1: And I lifted up the comforter that hid his face and bent down to look at him. Delbert. Delbert. My friend. The man who had defended me in the courtroom and lost. The man who had gone to the governor. Or had he gone? To plead for my life. Delbert, the man who told me, of course I know you didn't do it. Of course he knew. He alone of mortal men knew the murderer. For the defender of the accused man was the murderer himself. Wake him, Lewis.
4: No. Wake him.
1: Delbert. 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 Delbert, wake up!
4: Louis! Louis, what are you doing here?
2: He came with us, Delbert.
4: Harris! Harris and Etta, Delbert. No! Now go away!
2: You're a ghost! We are human souls, Delbert, come to hear your testimony. No! I won't
5: tell you anything. You murdered
2: them, didn't you, Delbert? No. You murdered us, Delbert. No, no, I...
4: Confess, Delbert. I
2: didn't do it. You did do it.
4: You, Lewis, you can't be here.
2: Confess. Well, I... Confess. Lewis must hear you, Delbert. Lewis! Lewis, I did do it. I killed him, Lewis. I murdered him. I knew I could throw the blame on you. I knew I could get you convicted and I could save myself. I
6: hated them too, Lewis. Oh, Louis! Louis, forgive me! Louis,
1: forgive me! We forgive you, Delbert. Ask Harris and Edda to forgive you.
6: Harris!
2: Edda. We have already forgiven you, Delbert. But you have done a great wrong to Louis. You will be punished, Delbert. I
1: confess. I'm going back to my body now in the prison. Louis, uh, Thank you. Forgive me. Thank you, Harris. Edna. I- I'm going back. Oh, Harris, you Wait, Louis. What? Lewis. Be quiet, murderer. What, Harris?
2: You can't go back, Louis. I can't go back.
1: Why? What have I? What?
4: You must stay. Boy.
1: Stay. Stay? Why must I stay? My body's back there in the prison waiting for me. I've got to go back and live. No, Lewis. Why? Tell me why. Everything's all... What's the matter?
4: You tell him, Delbert.
2: Lewis. Well? Lewis. They hanged you half an hour ago.
1: Today's Quiet Please story is Calling All Souls. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper. And the man who spoke to you was Ernest Chappell. And Kermit Murdoch played Delbert. Harris and Etta were respectively Ralph Schoolman and Mary Patton. Mr. Cooper and I are very grateful for the superb efforts of Albert Berman, who was always responsible for our Quiet Please music. For a word about next week, here is our writer director, Willis Cooper. Thank you for listening to Quiet, please, again. Next week I have a story for you called Adam and the Darkest Day. And so until next week at the same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chapel.
0: Enjoyed Calling All Souls from the Halloween episode of Quiet Please in 1948. Our next Halloween episode of Vintage Radio is from Inner Sanctum, the delightfully creepy showcase of horror tales that set the standard for decades to come. This story, with the bluntly gruesome title A Corpse for Halloween, aired on a Halloween night, 1949. It tells of a man with a guilty conscience over an incident in the jungle. And now, years later, That deadly night has come back to haunt him on Halloween in the concrete jungle, where the hunter will now become the hunted. And now, A Corpse for Halloween, as heard on Inner Sanctum, Halloween night, 1949.
7: Good evening, friends. This is your host to welcome you through the creaking door into the Inner Sanctum. Come on in. <laughs> One prankish little fellow whom we shall call maniac, for lack of a stronger word, just set fire to the walls. He said a closed room made him feel confined. As a result, four other characters are slightly burned up now. <laughs> Sanctum Mystery, Corpse for Halloween, was written by John Robert and stars Larry Haynes in the role of Jimmy with Barry Kroger as
6: Kavanaugh.
7: And now, let's unhinge our minds a little. After all, what's a little insanity among friends? Mm. Tonight's story dramatizes the fanatical hold of memory. The one scene, the one fragment that plays and replays over and over again in your mind. The one terror that's with you when you die and when you walk
6: and when you sleep. Oh. Sleep.
8: Who can sleep? I'm here in the 35-cent flop, but I'm in the Burma jungle. Watching a scene that never gets stale, even though it's five years old. I can hear sounds travel across the brush. I pick them up as if I'm a receiver set. Animal sounds. And I see, as if my eyes are in the sky, I see two grim figures standing with their rifles aimed at a pair of jungle beasts, a tiger and its mate in a crouch, ready to jump. They fire point-blank together as if by signal. <coughs> so good. They miss. The beasts roar and leap. I hear them scream out, Kavanaugh and Dr. Just before they die. Five years. And you've been everywhere trying to forget. And you almost do forget... But it edges right back into your mind by itself, like like when a guy suddenly sneaks up on you in the night. Do you have a match? What? Do you have a match? Oh yeah, yeah sure. You uh, popped up on me so suddenly. You're a nervous man. Thank you. I have a parcel with me for you. For me? What are you kidding? No. I have a parcel for you. Here, take it. Uh, Wait a minute. Hey, 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 wait. But he's gone. Just the way he came. As if he's... He's a chip off my sanity. As if there'd been nobody. But there is a package left with me. The mind doesn't dream up a package. A cardboard box, heavy kind of. And tissue, lots of tissue around something that... It had the feel of a head. It is a head. The stuffed head of a jungle tiger. Its mouth fixed in a snarl. It sends the blood hammering to my head. Doesn't make sense. No good figuring it out. Toss it into a river, box and all, and get away. Get among the people. Yeah. Yeah, Rocco's got a Rocco's. Get the jukebox going and slip into a fog coffee, Rocco. Jimmy, I got something for you. For me, Rocco? The package. The guy come in before and leaves a package for you. See? For Jimmy Fox. Your name on it. My name? My name's Jimmy Scott. You know that. Scott, yes, but the man says your name is also Jimmy Fox. He says he knows. He knows? He knows? <laughs> I took the package outside into the night, into an alleyway. Another cardboard box, heavy. And and tissue, lots of tissue around. Something that had the feel of a head. It was a head. But not a tiger's this time. It was a human skull. It shone with a hard white light where the moon touched it then it seemed to speak Do you have a mask? What? <laughs> you're being an idiot It isn't the skull talking to you, it's me You? Where are you? I'm behind you I, I don't see you It's because you're afraid to See me now? Yeah A black suit and a face grinning at me like Like a laughing mask It is a laughing mask Well, why are you wearing a mask? Why not? Tonight's Halloween. Uh, Halloween? Sure. Halloween. Not everybody plays jokes. Oh, George, I should have remembered it was Halloween. Can you identify the skull? Identify? Look, what kind of a <laughs> gag are you trying <laughs> to... Suppose I give you an hour to identify the skull. It's eight now until nine o'clock then, Jimmy. Uh, wait. Hey, hey, Wait. It was gone again. As if there'd been nobody. Just another big chip off my sanity. I really had to get away from myself now. I hit the back streets... And and then... Somewhere a big neon sign across a tenement pulled me off the sidewalk. It read... The Tillery Street Boys Neighborhood Association. Halloween costume ball. Public invited. A girl in a boot, masked like a witch, stopped me at the door... Mask, mister? Uh, m- mask. Oh, uh, sure, sure. Give me one. Black, green, yellow, or purple? What's your favorite color? Uh, yellow. All right, here you are. Fifty cents. Hey. I... Oh. Oh, what?
5: Just a description left with me. I'd almost forgotten. Uh, are you Jimmy Fox?
8: Suppose I was Jimmy Fox. What about it?
5: This grocery bag was left here for you. A man told me to tell you. You forgot it somewhere. And he said that he'd meet you one place or another later. Here, take it. By the shape of it, I'd say you had a Halloween pumpkin inside.
8: What if I told you there was... a human skull inside that grocery bag? Have you dared to call the skull by name yet? Or must I? Look, that gag isn't paying off, mister. All right, go ahead. You call it. by my name. Dolan. Boxer Dolan. Remember him? I, uh... Never knew the guy. You no doubt got me confused. Have I, Jimmy? You've changed your appearance cleverly, except for one thing disguise could never conceal. One thing? Your guilt. You wear it like a badge of shame. Oh, what am I guilty of? Murder. Two men left an encampment in the Burma jungle just before dawn. Two men, Boxer Dolan and Kavanaugh. A third man remained behind. He played sick, pretended to fever. The third man was you, Jimmy. Must I tell you the rest? Tell me the rest. Dolan and Kavanaugh carried rifles in the event of a jungle encounter. There was a jungle encounter, a tiger and its mate, an emergency, but an easy one to resolve for two expert hunters. Just one shot apiece, and there'd be two more dead tigers. Just one shot apiece. They had their one shot apiece, but the tigers didn't drop dead in their tracks. Instead, Boxer Dolan and Kavanaugh dropped. Ask me what happened, Jimmy. What happened... During the night, someone had emptied their rifle loads and substituted blank bullets. You did that, Jimmy. You engineered the murder of two men. You murdered your two partners in crime. Just one day's push from the Hindu temple, you'd all teamed up to loot. They got within 24 hours of treasure, and then you murdered them. One more day to the temple, so why split three ways, huh? You know about the temple, But I never pushed on to that temple. No loot, no nothing. How about that? You lost your nerve. You just hadn't counted on losing your nerve. What are you, a detective? No. I'm your second victim. I'm Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh? The Kavanaugh was killed. Unfortunately for you, he wasn't. I'll show you what I had to survive. Feel my sleeve. Feel it. It's empty Torn out of the socket Now the face behind this laughing gargoyle I wear See the left profile Oh, It isn't pretty, is it? The eye The eye's gone, too I spent five years finding you, Jimmy I've waited a long time to let you see my face You came after me to kill me after you've had the same 24 hours you arranged the Doron and I would have. What do you mean, the same 24 hours? Unarmed, in the jungle, and helpless. I'm going to hunt you for 24 hours, in this jungle, the jungle of the city, with every beast of prey I can buy. I'm going to hunt you, Jimmy. And in the end, when I've wrung every suffering from you, I'm going to kill you. What do you mean, every beast of prey you can buy. The denizens of the city jungle, the riffraff, the murderers, the men and women who buy and sell murder. I can afford them, Jimmy. See this, Ruby? Hey, is it real? And I have dozens, Jimmy, dozens. I didn't lose my nerve. It's ten o'clock, you can go now. Go and see if you can escape me and my pack. You're going through with this? Get along, Jimmy. Hurry. The beasts will be coming at you from the sewers and the cellars, ambushing you from the shadows into the dawn and through the day for 24 hours until 10 tomorrow night. Or you win.
7: I never want to, uh, hunt me up, Mm-mm. no, sir, that guy slays for creeps, <laughs> 24 hours, Kavanaugh's got 24 hours to kill, and Jimmy has just enough time to die, <laughs> yes, you know, Jimmy might win out over Kavanaugh. Now that he's got an extra skull to go with the one he's stuck with. After all, two heads are better than one. (laughs) Let's live out the terror now, shall
8: we? An animal game of murder for 24 hours. I was to be hunted down in a jungle where human beasts came at you from the sewers and cellars where killers in the hire of a homicidal lunatic lay in ambush. Well, I had to win. I had to save myself. I had to. Hide. The thing to do was to hide, fade into an alleyway and find a cellar and stay put for 24 hours. sickening rake of garbage cans until ten tomorrow night was I alone movement there was a whispering movement somewhere in the cellar a faint rattle of ash cans as if as if the wind was rattling them wind in an airtight cellar hello anybody there Oh, that's a, I've been imagining But then something Winged at me boring into my shoulder Sharp and deadly Like a knife <laughs> It came to Bleeding from a shoulder gash I got out of there And back into the streets Into a jungle of faces <laughs> It was Halloween night Like I'd never seen it Masks and costumes on kids of six and old clones of sixty. A crazy jungle of witches and snarling street captains and lunatics. They couldn't all be in the hire of Kavanaugh. And then... a offense was plastered with circus posters of jungle animals. A zany-looking guy was shooting from the hip of the poster while making menacing faces like a bad man. And caught a whiff of powder in the night air. The shot had burned into the poster. I crept up behind him Faking a gun with my fist in my coat pocket I rammed against his back Get him a pal, Ricky oh, I
7: got nothing, I'm not
8: a going Your gun, I want your gun handed over Oh, sh- sure, yeah. Now walk, walk up the block and don't turn back to look I had a gun now and the tables were turned I was the hunter now I drifted to the docks and took up a position with my back to the river. Thinking of suicide, Jimmy? Not anymore, Cavanaugh. You sound as if your morale had suddenly uh, improved. My morale's going great, Cavanaugh. Your animal hunt's about to boomerang. Blow right up in your face like this. Who's hunting who, Cavanaugh? Who's hunting who? Cavanaugh kept standing up. Three bullets point-blank enough to blow his head off But Cavanaugh kept standing up on (laughs) (laughs) How does it feel to hunt game with blank cartridges Like Boxer Dolan and I did once Blank cartridges? But that crazy-looking guy saw him burn a hole in the circus poster Only one bullet, the first one was real Simple Yeah, simple I get it Dead-Eyed Dick was another one of your beasts. Who's haunting who, Jimmy? Who's haunting who? The no, Cavanaugh! Cavanaugh, wait! Cavanaugh, kill me! Get it over with and kill me now, will you? Cavanaugh, you've got to kill me! I had to get out of there. The subway. There no, the subway. Fade into the subway. Get on a train and ride to the end of the line. Ride out of the jungle. An empty station. No one in it. No, no someone, two people. A dapper little guy buried behind a newspaper and an old lady in ragged clothes carrying a pet half hidden under a coat. A pet that looked like a cat. She came up to me, close, like to ask me something. Uh, this side goes to Lefferts Avenue station? Uh, Lefferts, I, I don't know. I'm a stranger here. Oh, oh Oh, Genevieve is hungry That's not a cat No, son A cub A tiger cub A a tiger cub? Would you like to stroke Genevieve? No, no, no Don't run away, son Genevieve won't hurt I ran away With the old crone after me Hobbling in the skirts and the little dapper guy behind the newspaper circling at me from the opposite direction, cornering me. I jumped to the tracks, my only out, and I ran. I ran it deep into the bowels of the subway, deep, very deep. The little dapper guy after me if he? he led business. And then the train it had a Halloween look, too, bearing down on me. An iron face with banjo eyes. I ran against the wall and flattened out. The train flashed past and the dapper little guy screamed. Kavanaugh was shy, one beast in his jungle. The little guy had been hit glancingly and hurled against the subway wall, pulverized. I got to him quickly and freshed him. I had a gun now. A gun with bullets that killed. I ran. I ran a half mile underground to another station and then back on the streets. Back in the animal game. It was three in the morning. A neon sign read Tillery Street Boys' Neighborhood Association. Halloween costume party. People were straggling out. The fun was over.
5: Oh, uh, What? You remember me?
8: Uh, no. I'm the witch who gave you a free mask and a grocery bag that you forgot somewhere. And,
5: and you're, uh, Jimmy Fox.
8: Jimmy, Scott, I, I used to be Jimmy Fox. Sister, are you all right? Am I all right? I mean, are you just what you look? A a sweet kid with brown eyes and a heart. Are you drunk? No, no, no beat. I'm dead beat. I've got to hold up somewhere, get some shut-eye. I've got to or I'll die. You're sick? Yeah, yeah, I'm sick, I'm sick. If I could just sleep around the clock until ten tomorrow night, if an angel came along and said, come home with me, I'll put you up.
5: Come home with me, Jimmy. I'll put you up.
8: sleep on a sofa with the gun under my pillow and the girl on a chair watching me anxiously. I had a friend. I could drop off and live in dreamland until ten that night. At ten I could wake up and live. Coming awake I heard the alarm we'd said go off. The alarm stopped. And there was a sound. An animal sound. And then a claw scratching at me, tearing at my cheek. I I jumped up. The girl was gone. A guy was sitting watching me now. A skinny kid with a heavy shock of hair, not a day over 21. Oh, that's a lousy way to have to wake up from a sleep, pal. Lousy way? There was an animal clawing at me, my cheeks bleeding. And Genevieve, she isn't housebroken. Still a little wild. You should have seen her dash for the kitchen when you let out a scream just now. Genevieve, who are you? You're Jimmy Fox, huh? Yeah. I got something for you. For me? Yeah, it was given to me to give to you. Here. A A rupee. Wait a minute, look. It's 10 o'clock. I set the alarm for 10 and it's 10. Well, it's only a quarter of. That clock's always 15 minutes ahead. Now the game's over. It's 10 and you can't cheat. I've I've won, Kavanaugh. You can't go back on your promise, Kavanaugh. You can't. What are you trying
5: to get over, pal? I know... I've won. You
8: can't cheat. I won't betray a gun. Pal, you're crazy. wait, look. You're crazy. It's 10 and I won't betray Kavanaugh. I've won. are rigid and my legs rigid like something exploded inside me and paralyzed my nerves. I can just look and hear. She's in the room now. A girl with a sweet face and brown eyes. her eyes horizon red, swollen from crying. I hear her talking to a cop. He's taking down what she says. He was a stray. He was like a sick
7: dog in the street. So I picked him up and brought him home.
8: Yes, sir. Why did he kill your brother, Buddy?
7: I don't know. I was taking a shower. And I heard him scream like a crazy
8: man. I heard him talk all mixed up. And I was taking a shower and I couldn't get here in time. There must be something you can tell me, Miss. Oh,
7: officer, everything is all so mixed up. At the Tillery Street costume ball, a, a man gave me a cat with tiger stripes, and he begged me to keep it for him for a while until he found a new home for it. He'd been evicted. He said Yes? Well, then, in the all-night restaurant my brother works in, A man gave Buddy a ruby to give to Jimmy Fox. When he woke up, he told my
8: brother the ruby belonged to Jimmy Fox. This piece of glass? Yes. That's uh, something off the Woolworth time counter. Uh, What else?
6: That's all. Really, that's all.
8: I watch and I hear. I see through Kavanaugh's trick get me crazy so I'll murder a stranger who called himself Buddy. The brother of a girl with brown eyes and a heart. Frame me so I'll just want to die for weeks of a murder trial and months in the death house and four minutes in the death chair. I kept listening to them talk. The girl and the cop. Okay. We'll have to get the rest from Jimmy Fox here. Yeah, look at him. He's paralyzed with fright. I wonder what kind of a crazy Halloween story he's going to try to palm off on us when we get him talking. Uh, uh, Captain Devereux speaking. Uh, McAvoy, send a police ambulance to 445 10th Street, apartment 3 rear. And McAvoy, see that a straitjacket's on that ambulance. <laughs>
7: It got so poor Jim didn't know whether he was coming or going Nuts (laughs) What got his goat most was the way he kept seeing animals everywhere Very confusing to a guy on the lam Yeah, it got so he couldn't tell whose zoo (laughs) Tomorrow? Oh, sure I read this Halloween notice on a tree somewhere. Never hunt out of reason.
5: States over CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, and has been rebroadcast for servicemen and women overseas.
0: We hope you enjoyed A Corpse for Halloween from the Halloween episode of Inner Sanctum in 1949. For our next Halloween episode, we return to the radio program Quiet, Please. This story, named Don't Tell Me About Halloween, is a campy take on the premise of immortality and all its pitfalls. The narrator recounts his centuries of long life and all he has accomplished. All in all, it seems like a good life, but there is one catch. He has to spend one night per year with his wife, which wouldn't be too bad if she just wasn't so jealous. And now, Don't Tell Me About Halloween, from the October twenty-seventh, 1947 broadcast of Quiet, Please.
9: The system presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight, is called Don't Tell Me About Halloween.
6: Uh,
9: I'm going to kill my wife tonight, or maybe tomorrow night. I mean, I'm going to kill one of my wives. I bet her or something's going to happen to me that won't be good. Well, Halloween's almost here. Halloween's the deadline. And Candace has to be dead before Halloween. Only trouble is, I'm not sure I'll recognize her when she shows up. You ever been in Salem, Massachusetts? The place where they hanged all the witches? No, they didn't burn them at the stake. A lot of people think so, but they didn't. They hanged them. All except the man-witch, old Giles Corey, they pressed into death. Very unpleasant. Well, it was in Salem, this particular Halloween, that I met Candace. It was dark up there on the hill where the gallows used to stand. Dark and cold with a damp wind coming in off the sea. A few little lights you could see in the dusk only made it darker and lonelier and creepier up there. I remember how I shivered as I started down the hill to town. And I remember how I jumped when something that looked like a black cat jumped out of the shadows of my feet. Without thinking, I yelled, who's that? My heart almost stopped beating because...
10: Well, good evening.
9: I'd been all alone up there. And then, all of a sudden, there was a woman standing beside me. You're
10: the first human being that's spoken to me tonight. Who are you? I'm
9: Candace. I... I don't know any Candace.
10: You didn't what you do now?
9: You scared me to death.
10: Oh, I wouldn't do that to you. What's your name? Craig. You like me, Craig?
9: What? Well, I I don't know what you look like.
10: I like you very much.
9: Well, but I...
10: Kiss me, Craig. Now... Kiss me, I think. You know... You're going to be a very nice husband for me, Craig. What do you
9: mean? I'm not going to... Oh, yes,
10: you are. When I say something's going to happen, it happens, Craig.
9: But I... I'm not...
10: Wouldn't you like to be rich, Craig, and have a beautiful wife? I am beautiful. You'll see. Wouldn't you like to be rich and wise and happy and live forever? Wouldn't you, Craig?
9: Who the devil are you?
10: (laughs) That's a very apt way of putting it, Craig. Who are you? I'm Candace.
9: That doesn't mean anything to me.
10: I'm the witch they didn't hang, Craig.
9: Well, she was right. I am rich. Whenever I need money, which hasn't been for a long time now, I... Ask Candace when she comes to see me at Halloween time. I am reasonably wise, I suppose. I'm quite an authority on American history, quite well considered at the university here. And while I can't say I've lived forever, I have lived 253 years. Now, that's right. You see, I met Candace on the hill above Salem in the year 1694. Two years after Cotton Mather stopped hanging wishes. Yes, Candace has kept her promise. I remember the way she put it, standing up there in the early morning, watching the mists crawling along the ground below us.
10: You'll not see me now till another Halloween. And I can't tell you what form I'll be in when I come to see you again. But if you see a strange bird or a lost dog or any strange being at your door come Halloween, you say, who's that? And if it so happens, the stranger's me. By then, I'll be home with you till the cock crows for morning.
9: And I remember I started to speak, to ask questions, but she stopped me.
10: For the time's short now, my love. And remember the words, and we've all the future before us. As long as I live, you shall live.
9: And below us somewhere, a rooster crowed. And I was standing alone on the hill. And a yellow butterfly was rising in circles above my head. I watched it disappear into the first rays of the sun. No, I didn't believe it either. And yet, we were only two years away from the witchcraft trials, and whatever may be said today, the belief in witches didn't die as quick a death as modern historians would have you believe. I was there. I know. Besides, I had married a witch. Halloween, 1695, a stray dog lay on my doorstep, shivering in the rain. I don't like dogs. I was about to boot the animal into the street when I caught a look in its eyes. I yelled, who's that?
10: Well, it's about time. I've been lying there on that doorstep, freezing and nearly drowned without a and you stand there and look at me like some great fool. Get me something to put around me and start up the fire before I take my death of cold. And I do believe you were going to kick me, too. What did I ever say to
9: you? <laughs> Candace, dear, how was I to know?
6: Give me that
9: quilt! Oh! Oh, she was all contriteness and apologies in a moment. But I can feel that lap alongside my chops from two and a half centuries ago. And our first anniversary was a very pleasant one. I was rather glad I'd married a witch. It had its drawbacks, though, despite wealth and growing wisdom. People around me in Salem grew old, and I seemed to stay the same age. I moved away, and the years went on. I moved away from Salem, and I moved away from Philadelphia... I moved from Baltimore, Richmond, Savannah, and a score of other places. I spoke to George Washington, and I watched Robert Fulton's steamboat chug up the Hudson when I was more than 100 years old, and looked 35. And every Halloween, I welcomed Candace home for a night. One year, in a farmhouse on an Illinois prairie, a red fox whined up my door, and it was Candace. One year, a blue jay flew down from a tree in Missouri.
5: And another year,
9: she came as a skittering little gray field mouse. And the year I came back to Wisconsin after the Civil War, a porcupine gnawed its way into my cabin on Halloween night, and one of its quills spiked me before I thought to say, Who's that? And when Candace smiled at me, there was only a strand of yellow hair through the thick of my thumb. I remember she pulled it out. And it hurts. Years and years and years. She's been a wonderful wife, but I never forget what she is. Once a year is getting to be enough. It was just 67 years ago tonight, before Halloween, you see. That was the first time she appeared before Halloween, 1880. Brother B. Hayes was still president, and it seems like yesterday. I heard something bumping against the front door, and before I thought, I called out, Who's that?
10: I thought you were never going to call me.
9: Darling, I didn't know it was you. Well? Huh?
10: Don't people kiss their wives anymore?
9: Darling, you you surprised me.
10: Suppose you surprised me. Well,
9: how come you're so early, dear?
10: Oh, I just thought it would be nice to surprise you.
9: You certainly did surprise me. Did I? You certainly did.
10: What's happened since last year?
9: Why, uh, nothing much. That's so. And what have you been doing?
10: I've been away. Where? Craig, you'll be better off if you don't inquire too closely into my private affairs. Being married to a witch ought to be enough for you. Well,
9: I'm... I'm just interested, Candace. Like
10: I'm interested in what you do when I'm away. What? I am interested, you know.
9: I don't know what you're talking about, dear. You don't? No.
10: Don't you ever get lonely while I'm away? What?
9: Why, certainly. Mm
10: Mm-hmm. What are you
9: talking about?
10: You know what I'm talking about, Craig.
9: I don't either.
10: You're forgetting that I'm a witch, dear? What? (laughs) You can't keep anything from me, Craig. Don't you know that? Why, Oh, I won't punish you, Craig. But you mustn't run around with red-haired girls.
9: Why? I don't know what you... Oh,
10: yes, you do. So I just decided to take that temptation away from you.
9: Candace, what did you... Look
10: over there at the window, darling.
9: And I looked. And peering in the window out of the darkness was a frightened, tiny, red squirrel... It's teeth chattering with terror and cold.
10: She's still got her red hair, dear.
9: Candace. Candace, did you do that to her?
10: Of course, dear. No, no, don't try to rescue her, Craig. I've got other plans for your little girlfriend. What are you going to... Listen. Now come here and kiss me. Oh. Good.
9: ways it's fine. In some ways. You know, in the last 50, 60 years, I've gotten so I'm afraid to say who's that Anytime. Uh, wait a second. Did you hear anything? No, I guess she's not here. I I wouldn't want her to surprise me again. I want to surprise her. her. It's 67 years ago that she set the wolves on that poor little red squirrel. It was once Marjorie... I've forgotten your last name. But I haven't forgotten what she did to me. They arrested me for murder. Candace let me stay in jail a whole year. I waited till the next Halloween, 1881, till a little screech owl came and perched on the window ledge of my cell. And even then, it took me half an hour to remember to say, Who's that? <coughs> oh, sure, yes, she was very sorry. She said, Very sorry. But I had to be punished for being unfaithful to her. Unfaithful. I never even kissed Marjorie. had any female acquaintances, I stopped seeing them along in early September. But Donna, how would you like it if you only saw your wife once a year? And if you knew she could turn you into a caterpillar or a hippopotamus or something whenever she got niffed with you? You'd look around, too, just like I did. She nearly caught me again in Washington, D.C. That was in 1910. I'd been a good boy for nearly 50 years. Well, Pretty good, or at least careful. I was standing outside the door of the Willard Hotel that Halloween night. A big moth dropped out of the darkness and lit on my shoulder. Candace likes to be a moth, I think. She's appeared that way 15 to 20 times. Well, I knew at once what it was. My conscience was reasonably clear, so I just said, Who's that?
10: Hello, darling.
9: Welcome back, Candace, dear.
10: Been a good boy.
9: Perfect, darling.
10: Love, Candace.
9: Mad about Candace. You better be. Now, Candace.
10: You living here now? In the hotel?
9: (laughs) I I hope you like it.
10: I've never been in Washington before.
9: We've got sightseeing tomorrow.
10: Oh, I saw quite a lot of it. Flying in. Yes? Who's that woman? What woman? Why, Craig, darling, where on earth have you been? Yes, I
9: thought... Gertrude was in Chicago where I'd left her. Wasn't that just my luck? I don't know what Candace did to her. She just disappeared. But you know what that witch did to me? She turned me into a fire alarm box. do no laugh. It isn't funny. From October 31st, 1910 till October 31st, 1911, I stood there in front of the Willard Hotel, rain and shine, snow and boiling hot weather. And nobody even turned in an alarm on me. Of course they did. Paint me in the spring. Then at half past eleven on Halloween, a little black dog came by. I tried to say, Who's that? And I made it all right because I could hear gears clicking and wheels turning. And there we were, Candace in a black fur coat and me in a blue serge suit all plastered with red paint.
10: (laughs) You, You look perfectly awful, Craig.
9: Well, how do you think I feel?
10: now, maybe you won't be chasing other women, my dear.
9: Candace, I I promise I'll never do it again.
10: You'd better not, sweetheart. I'm a very jealous woman.
9: So I noticed.
10: And if you think that was bad, how would you like me... No, no,
9: Candace, please. No, no. Don't tell me.
10: You may kiss me now. And don't get paint all over my coat.
9: Candace can be very sweet when she wants to be. For these last 30 years, she doesn't seem to want to be very much. She spends most of the time she's here asking me questions about what I've been doing, where I've been, the people I've seen. And friend, I'm getting awful tired of it. 253 years is a long time. A long, long time with a jealous wife. So I'm going to get rid of her. This time I'm done. I told you I got this job here at the university in the history department. I've got this little cottage up here in the hills where I go every Halloween. Well, I... I don't want Candace barging in on faculty role. Well, I'm not supposed to be married here. And you know faculty people. So, well, I've decided to end it all this year. I'm going to kill Candace. But that is, I hope I am. When she appears, I... I'm not going to say who's that. I'm going to kill her. And then... Alicia and I are going to be married. Oh, I... I, forgot, I didn't tell you about Alicia. Uh, here comes Alicia now. Uh, I, I'd like to have you meet her. Uh, this is Alicia. How do you do? Alicia and I are going to be
10: married. Yes, indeed. Right after Halloween.
9: Alicia's secretary to the Dean of Women.
10: Well, that's how I met Craig. <laughs> uh,
9: well, I hope you don't mean to imply I was flirting with
10: no dear. I mean, you were being introduced to her when, when we first saw each other.
1: Oh, darling. I'll
9: never forget it.
10: Oh, I won't either.
9: <laughs> Isn't she pretty?
10: Oh, Craig, you mustn't talk that way to strangers. Oh,
9: I'm sorry, dear, but you are pretty.
10: <laughs> but I'm so much younger than you are, Craig.
9: Well, uh, you are a little younger, dear, but uh, that won't make any difference. Will it?
10: Oh, not to me
9: uh, excuse us a second, <laughs> darling. I love you.
10: Oh, darling, I love you. <laughs> yes. Ma'am. Oh, but they're looking, sweetheart.
9: Shut your eyes a second, will you, please? Like her? Hey, quite a girl, isn't she? Nothing at all like Candace. Man, am I tired of Candace? Uh, wait a second, the phone's ringing. I'll be right with you. Hello.
10: Hello, darling. This is Alicia.
9: Oh, oh, uh, hello, dear. Are
10: you going up
9: to the cabin today? I'm just leaving, darling.
10: Oh, I wish I could go with
9: you. Well, I do too, but I'll be back in a day or so.
6: Oh, couldn't I, please?
9: No, no, dear, no. Uh, you know it can't be done. I wish I could. Well, it isn't practicable, dear. I'll hurry back.
6: I could drive up tomorrow. I'll
9: probably be back tomorrow. I'll
6: miss you.
9: I'll miss you. I just
6: wanted to say goodbye.
9: I love you. I love you. See you in a day or so, honey. All right. But I wish I could go along. It can't be done, sweet.
6: Uh, no, no, no! no you. Don't,
9: don't Goodbye. do that, uh, Alicia! Wait! Oh my gosh, she can't do that if she does not Hello, hello! Uh, get me, uh, get me, uh, three, four, one, two, J. Well, so here I am. I wish I could have got Alicia back on that phone. If she comes up here, she'll. She won't. She's got better sense. Yeah, let's see. What time is it? Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. Revolver with a silver bullet. The old Revolutionary War bayonet I had at Valley Forge. The bowie knife Dave Crockett gave me. And yeah, I'm pretty well fixed. Come on, Candace, honey. Come on. Just come on in. <laughs> this time, this time you can come ahead of time, baby, and Papa will be waiting for you. <laughs> and then, uh, Alicia. <coughs> she, she's an owl or something this time. Wait a minute. Oh, if she's an owl, I better get that shot. Going to get away this time, sweetheart. Get away from that lamp. Get away, I say. I got you. Oh, you're not dead yet. Well, I'll.
10: Never mind, Craig. What? Never mind. I'm going to die, all right. Who's that? It's too late, Craig. You've killed me. <laughs> but haven't you forgotten something, darling?
9: What did I forget?
10: Forgot what I told you back there on the hill at Salem, sweetheart. You'll live just as long as I live, and when I die, you'll die.
9: Candace, Candace, let me help you. It's
10: too late, darling.
6: Much, much too late.
5: Hello, hello. This is Forest Ranger Station. Oh, hello, Brad. Oh, this is Joe Thomas. Listen, Brad, you better call the county cops or somebody. Well, I don't know. Well, I'm at the little cabin halfway up Latigo Canyon. You know, the one with the red shutters? Yeah, well, I was on my way up to the station, see, and I, I meet this girl. Please be quiet, will you, lady? This girl and her car's busted down. And, well, I picked her up, and she wants to come up here. Uh, What's your name, lady?
4: Alicia Dean.
5: Alicia Dean. Well, she's going to meet this fella here, she says, and I left her out, and I was just starting away, and I hear her scream. Scream, you know, holler. So I stop and run inside, and she's yelling her head off. Lady, lady, please. Yeah. yeah, I don't know, Brad. They sure looked awful strange. No, there wasn't no guy here. No, nothing but a squashed moth, one of them big death's head moths, you know. And a skeleton. Yeah, a skeleton. All dried up and dusty. Like it was maybe 250 years old. And that's all. Just him and the moth. Funny, ain't it?
9: and directed by Willis Cooper. The man who talked to you was Ernest Chappell. And Gerita Bauer played Candace. Alicia was Peggy Stanley. And the forest stranger was Jim Bowles. The music for Quiet, Please is composed and played by Gene Perazzo, except, of course, for our theme, which, in answer to many queries, is based on the second movement of the symphony in D minor by Cesar Frac. Now, for a word about next week's Quiet, Please, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper.
5: Take me out to the graveyard. That's the title I've got for next week's story. Come along for the
9: ride, won't you? And so until next week at this time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chapel. Quiet, please, comes to you from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
0: just listened to Don't Tell Me About Halloween, the Halloween episode of Quiet, Please, in 1947. Tonight's last Halloween tale is an unusual one, told by the radio program Suspense on Halloween night in 1946. When this story aired, the concept of the horror movie zombie had not yet entered pop culture. The undead creatures that modern audiences recognize wouldn't be devised until the landmark horror film Night of the Living Dead terrified filmgoers over 20 years later. Earlier concepts of the undead were mostly limited to blood-sucking vampires, haunting ghouls, and the occasional reanimated corpse. Lazarus Walks takes a different approach, with a man who believes he has narrowly avoided a deadly accident, only to find he has been deeply changed. And now, Lazarus Walks, as heard on Suspense Halloween Night, 1946. And now,
1: Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, made in California for enjoyment
11: throughout the world, Roma Wines
3: present... Suspense.
11: Tonight, Roma
1: Wines
3: bring you Mr. Brian Dunleavy... as star of Lazarus Walks... a suspense play produced, edited, and directed... for Roma Wines by William Spear.
11: This is the truth. Do you understand? The truth. It must be the truth... It has to be. I, Robert Winsley Graham, a doctor and psychiatrist by profession, do hereby of my own free will and volition, albeit with deepest regret, make the following full and complete statement relative to that all but unbelievable series of events which has brought such disaster and misfortune to my house and particularly to my poor wife, Isabel. It had its beginning properly speaking some two months ago, to be exact, on the evening of August 25th. We were in the drawing room, Isabel at the piano practicing, as she said, her Aunt Jane and I on opposite side.
12: Isabel, what's the matter?
13: I don't know. I can't seem to keep my mind on anything anymore. Even my
12: music. Nerves. Nerves. <laughs> Aunt Jane, please. I'm sorry, but I don't believe in beating about the bush. You're an artist. You've got talent. There's no sense in you trying to subordinate yourself to somebody else.
13: Aunt Jane, that's enough. I'm not subordinating myself to anyone.
11: Oh, really, Aunt Jane, you mustn't interfere, you know.
13: Robert doesn't want me to go back on the stage.
11: Oh, and... darling, it isn't that I don't want you to go back. I'm proud of you. You know that. It's only because I think... Because I know that going back to a professional career at your present mental condition could be terribly harmful.
13: Yes, I know, Robert. I know you're right.
11: After all, I am a doctor. It's my business to know these things. I'll get it probably in the hospital. Hello. Yes, this is Dr. Graham. Who? Oh, yes. Yes, why, of course. When would you like to see me? All right, fine. No, no, no trouble at all. Very well, I'll be expecting you. Goodbye. Isabel, good heavens, who do you suppose that was? Who? Roger Holcomb. Do you remember the case, Roger Holcomb? Roger Holcomb? I remember it. Of course you do. The fellow who was brought back from the dead, as the newspapers put it, about a year ago.
13: Oh, yes.
11: You know, he really was dead for four full minutes, as far as medical science was concerned. And then Bates brought him around. It was a nine days' wonder at the time.
13: What does he want to see you about?
11: I don't know. Something to do with his experience, obviously. Oh. He was in a terribly agitated state, poor fellow. He'd been walking up and down in front of the house for an hour, trying to get up courage to ring the bell. Finally, he phoned from the corner drugstore.
13: Oh, the poor man. Why in the world would he do that?
11: Anxiety, neurosis. They hounded him in the most shocking way when he got out of the hospital. You know, preachers and spiritualists and movie agents and just plain fakers. People trying to find out if he remembered anything of the four minutes when he was supposed to be dead. And people just trying to exploit it. Oh,
12: that's notoriety. Some thrive on it, some don't. One man's meat is another man's poison.
11: Well, that must be Holcomb now. I'll take him into the office.
3: Dr. Graham?
11: Yes. You're Roger Holcomb? Yes. Come in. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Holcomb. Is it? Sit down. Why did you come to me, Mr. Holcomb? Well,
3: I was told that you specialized in strange cases. Things that other men can't explain.
11: Yes, that's true in a way.
3: You know what happened when I got out of the hospital? How they followed me and questioned me, hounded me day and night trying to find out if I remembered anything, if I'd experienced anything beyond the grave. Yes, I remember that. Then you remember that my answer was always the same, that I remembered nothing, that I knew nothing.
11: Well, I was wrong. Oh? What did you experience during those four minutes? I don't know. But it must have been something,
3: something I don't even dare to think about.
11: How do you know this?
3: Well, it happened the first time on a boat trip which I'd taken to recover my health. I found myself chatting with a woman who was seated at my table in the dining salon. She found occasion, such women often will, to mention her age. She said, after all, I'm not yet 40. And then it happened. What happened? From somewhere came crashing into my mind the certain knowledge... the exact day and year of that woman's birth. And with it, a compulsion to speak out, a compulsion which I could no more have resisted than I could have resisted breathing. I said, Madam, you were born in May, weren't you? May 30th. And then I added the date, the year 1900. She was well over 40. She'd lied to me. It's an innocent enough thing, but I had known the truth and been forced to speak it And I have been ever since.
11: Well, And this condition has existed only since your... uh... Since my four minutes beyond the grave.
3: Yes. It's as though... Well, this will sound... It's as though in that brief time... I had glimpsed eternity. That I'd seen revealed all truth of all the ages. Now, I know that sounds foolish, but... uh,
11: this is most amazing. Well, uh, tell me, you have a family and friends who are understanding... Oh, for heaven's sake, doctor, don't you understand what this has done to me? Yes, I had a family,
3: friends, a girl I was going to marry. Today I'm an outcast, a pariah. I'm shunned, feared. It's hate hated.
11: Mr. Holcomb, I believe that this condition is very real to you. Causes you very real anguish. I want to help you. Do you think you can? I'm confident that I can. Do you suppose you could arrange to stay with me here at my home for a matter of weeks or months, if necessary? Oh, I'd do anything, anything
3: in the world to be a normal man again.
11: Well, you'll have your own quarters. You'll be quite comfortable, I assure you. Well, I'm sure. It's a lovely house, what I've seen of it. Yes, I'm rather lucky. I'm interested in research primarily, and not much money in that, you know, but... A couple of years ago, I came into quite a nice inheritance. The house went with it. Uh, uh, I, uh, uh, oh. What is it? What's the matter? The inheritance
3: was not yours, it was your wife's. The house is your wife's. You are penniless. That's
11: true. I don't know why I lied to you. In pride, I suppose. Oh, I'm sorry, I... I couldn't help it. I'll, I'll go now. No, no, please. It was my fault. It's a small matter. But you see now that... I want to help you. Do you believe me now? I believe, Mr. Holcomb, either that you are far more ill than I realized or that in the months to come, you and I must venture into a realm never before explored by mortal man.
1: For Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Brian Dunleavy in Lazarus Walks, a radio play by Robert L. Richards from a story by J. Marion Speed. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense.
11: It was utterly fantastic and yet it was true. I checked the facts again and again. He could not possibly have known, and yet he knew. Can you imagine what this meant to a man of science? If I could fathom the depths of Roger Holcomb's mind, I could make a contribution to the body of scientific knowledge absolutely without parallel in modern times. There remained the problem of Isabel. I was aware of the danger, of course, but I believed I could control the situation. I determined to proceed. Actually, Holcomb's presence made itself felt almost immediately. The first incident came after he had been with us scarcely a week.
12: Isabel, please stop that playing and listen to me.
13: Aunt Jane, you know Robert has said I mustn't talk about it. That's bad for me. I don't
12: care what Robert says.
13: I've been sick, that's all. He's
12: made you sick.
13: That's ridiculous.
12: Maybe it's just that he's afraid of losing you. Maybe he's even afraid of losing your money. But I'm absolutely convinced that whether he's meant it or not, he's made you believe there's something the matter with you that isn't. Aunt Jane, I simply forbid you to talk this way. Isabel, Isabel, do something before it's too late. Do? What?
13: Get away. Leave him. Divorce him. Anything. Aunt Jane, you don't know what you're saying.
11: Oh, I hope we're not interrupting.
13: Of course not, darling. Hello, Roger.
11: Hello, Isabel. Mrs. Porton. Good afternoon.
13: How are you feeling, Roger?
11: Well, better, I think. Uh... I think it would be better if we didn't discuss our our states of mind, Isabel.
13: Oh, yes, of course. I, I'm sorry. Well, would you like me to play something for you? You know, I think I'm beginning to get the feel of it again. I, really, I do.
11: You're sure we haven't interrupted some conversation?
12: Of uh, course not. We we'll were just discussing how
3: helpful you've been in getting Isabel <laughs> back to our work mm-hmm. again. Roger! No, you are not. You were telling Isabel to
11: divorce her husband. Why? Isabel. I'm sorry. I'm
3: sorry. Roger! I'm
12: sorry. Roger, come back here.
11: Isabel, is that true? You
12: brought him in here deliberately.
11: Is that true? It doesn't
12: matter. Oh, you've known how I felt for a long time.
11: Yes, I'm afraid I have.
12: Robert, it was all so silly. She didn't mean it. It was just I that she did mean it. I'm sorry, Isabel. But I've been under this roof too long as it is. Oh, Aunt Jane, you're not leaving It's the best, Isabel.
11: Yes, I think it is decidedly best that you go at once. It was this incident which gave me my first insight into the relationship which was destined to develop between Isabel Roger and myself. The first and most obvious result was that Isabel and I became further estranged as each day passed. It was difficult to speak of even the most casual things with this strangely terrifying specter of truth always at our elbow. The situation reached its inevitable climax the evening that Leopold Cerinsky, the famous conductor of the Los Angeles Symphony, was to call on Elizabeth with a view to a resumption of her professional career under his auspices. I gave a great deal of thought to that evening. It had to be handled with the greatest tact.
13: Robert, you... You will help me, won't you?
11: Of course I will, darling.
13: Robert, does he have to have dinner with us tonight?
11: Roger? Isabel, you know how I stand on that. Oh,
13: yes, I know, but just this once.
11: Even once, Isabel, to keep him in his room like a spoiled child when we have guests... Might undo everything I've accomplished in weeks.
13: I know, darling, of course you're right, but...
11: Roger, come in. Robert. Yes? I was wondering if I mightn't be excused just tonight. You're having dinner with us, Roger? Must I? You know you must, Roger, and you know why.
13: Roger, don't you want to meet Mr. Cerinsky? He's really a wonderful person.
3: Yes, indeed, I would very much, but... You
13: know, Roger, I made my debut with him in 1934. I did a concert with him every year until... Isabel
11: was... Isabel was very talented.
13: I was. I, I am. Roger, I'm going to play with him again, you know. He he wants me to open the season in November. Can you imagine what it means to me?
3: I'm so glad, Isabel.
13: And Robert has finally given his consent, haven't you, dear?
11: <coughs> Robert? <coughs> Robert? I'm sorry. What was it you said, Isabel?
13: <coughs> I said you'd given your consent to my playing with Sarinsky.
11: I... <coughs> Isabel, you know I don't want you to think that I'd ever stand in your way.
13: Yes, I... I know, dear. I'll do the... the Emperor Concerto, and... and you'll come to hear me. You do want to, don't you, Roger?
3: Well, I... Please, Isabel, don't ask me things that I can't... What's the matter?
13: What's the matter with both of you? You act as though you thought I wouldn't be able to appear. As though the whole idea were hopeless or something.
11: Isabel, please. I am
13: going to play... Now I'll be better than I ever was. You know I will, don't you?
11: Don't you? Yes, yes, of course, Isabel. You play wonderfully. <laughs> no. No, Robert, no, that's untrue. You're very certain that Isabel
3: will be prevented from ever playing a game by death. Death? Oh, Isabel, forgive me, forgive me.
13: By death. <laughs> no.
3: No, it's not true
13: tell me it isn't. Roger. Roger, who's going to die? Answer me. Roger, do you hear me? Answer me.
4: Answer me.
11: When Serensky arrived, I told him that it would be quite impossible for Isabel to leave her room. The concert was canceled, and indeed, to my knowledge, she has never touched the piano since that day. By now, to even the most casual observer, it must appear only natural that Isabel had every motive for a desperate, almost paranoid hatred of Roger Holcomb. This much was clear to me, the rest not yet. As a precautionary measure, I prescribed a drug for Isabel, which she at last consented to take. I gave her her own supply, and she administered it to herself as I had directed, but... One thing, from any point of view, was certain. I had to keep Roger and Isabel apart. Perhaps what I feared was indeed inevitable. I honestly did not think so at the time.
13: Roger. Roger. Yeah? It's me, Isabel. What do you want? Let me in, please.
3: No. Please.
13: It's terribly important.
3: Robert said... I
13: know. But he said... He said it would be all right this time.
3: Are you sure? Yes. Yes, please. All right. Now, what do you want?
13: I want to talk to you, that's all.
3: What about that's so important?
13: Roger, why don't you ever leave your room anymore? Can't you guess? Do you think I hate you?
3: Oh, Isabel, I don't know what to think you anymore. You do, don't you? I warned him. I told him it would happen. Now I'm going mad up here, thinking of the anguish I've caused but you. But, Roger, I don't... You must believe me. I know what it's been like for you having me here, Roger. Isabel. Roger, you see...
13: You see, for the first time in my life, I think my husband is wrong about something. Wrong? Yes. Don't you see? He's been worried about both of us, and so this... This distrust has grown up between us.
3: Well, I don't distrust you, Isabel. You've been more wonderful than me. But
13: you're afraid of me. And that amounts to the same thing.
3: Mm. And
13: it's bad for both of us. It's hurting both of us.
3: I've often felt I wanted to talk to you, to beg your pardon. Oh,
13: Roger, you don't have to do that. We're both... We're both sick. But I... I think if we saw each other sometimes, if we talked the whole thing out, it would help us both.
3: Does... Does Robert think so, too? No. Then he didn't tell you it was all right to see me? No. I lied to you. You what? I lied to you. You lied to me? And it didn't happen. Isabel, don't you see? I am getting well. It didn't happen. I know.
13: I know, Roger. I don't think it does happen anymore, except with except with Robert.
3: With Robert? But what makes you think that I... I don't know.
13: I... Something about the way he acts...
3: The way he is. Oh, but, Isabel, he is curing me then. But, but perhaps you shouldn't. No. Have
13: Don't you understand? We must see each other. We must talk. Mm. Listen.
11: To me. Isabel. Robert, something's happened that I must tell you. Please, you're completely overwrought.
3: Oh, but, Robert, it. it, it, it
11: I must it, insist. Isabel, uh, why did you do this? I'm sorry. you have to have a sedative right away. Isabel, get the bottle from your room. Oh. No. Mine? Yes. Yes, hurry.
13: All
3: right.
11: Robert, she lied to me. Yes, yes, I know. But, Roger, I must absolutely forbid you to talk now. You must trust me.
3: Well,
11: all right, but but later I want to have a long talk. Of course you. we shall. Here right. it
13: is. And I brought my hey. hypodermic, too.
11: I'm glad you did. The other one's mislaid somewhere. Will you give it to him, please? I? Yes, this has upset me rather badly. My hands are shaking.
13: Oh, Robert, I'm terribly sorry. No matter
11: now. Give him the hypodermic. The upper arm. That's right. Yes there. Thank you. Leave us now, please, Isabel.
13: Yes.
3: All right.
11: How are you feeling now, Roger?
3: Huh. I'm fine, Robert. I
11: think I'm better than I have been in months. I know you're better. That's why I was so upset, you see. Oh, well, well, why, Robert? I can't tell you all my reasons now, but you must trust me and believe in me. Why? Oh, I... I do. It's only that I'm afraid. For your health. (laughs) Uh. Roger. No. You're afraid of murder. It was clear to me now... I knew I must take immediate action. I knew that the most terrible consequences might result if Isabel were alone with Roger Holcomb even for a moment. For he knew. He said so. There was no other explanation. I thought it through most carefully. And yet, no plans are perfect. No man is infallible. Isabel. Isabel. <laughs>
13: Robert, you frightened me.
11: What were you doing?
13: Why, nothing.
11: Don't lie to me, Isabel.
13: I'm not. I I was...
11: You were coming from Roger's room. No,
13: no, I swear I wasn't.
11: Isabel, don't you understand that you're sick? That I've insisted on these things for your own good and his...
13: All right. I was going to talk to him, but I haven't.
11: Oh, Isabel, why do you try to tell me that? But
13: it's true, Robert, really true.
11: Is it? Roger. Roger! What? What's the matter? Look.
13: Robert. Oh, no, it couldn't be.
11: It is. He's dead. Dead? The hypodermic by his side. The drug. Your drug. Your hypodermic.
13: But it, it's only a sedative.
11: Except that in large quantities, it's fatal. You know that.
13: Oh, Robert, no. No, uh, listen to me.
11: Oh, Isabel, why? Why, when I warned you? Robert,
13: look at me. Look at me. It's Isabel. It's your wife. You can't... No. Where are you going? Robert, come back here.
11: I'm going to call the police. (laughs) Even though it did not come to me as a shock, even from my point of view as a scientist, it was terrible enough. Yet, it had to be done, and I had done it. I did not speak to her as we waited, and she made no further attempt to appeal to me. The police arrived. I told the story with as little emotion as possible. Yeah? Yeah, there are fingerprints all right on both the bottle and the hypodermic. Those would be my wife's, of course. They both belonged to her. Is uh, that true, Mrs. Graham? Yes. Dr. Graham, do I understand you're formally charging your wife with the murder of Roger Holcomb? You could hardly expect me to do that, could you, Inspector? I'm simply telling you the facts. Yeah? Well, you've carefully avoided saying anything definite as to your suspicions, Doctor. But I get the distinct impression she uh, hated him. My wife has been mentally ill for some time. There are many people who can testify to that. She will plead insanity, Inspector, of course. Hmm. Well, Dr. Graham, I can't tell you how sorry I am, but the things you've told me add up to only one thing, as you yourself obviously recognize. Yes. Your wife, Isabel Graham, murdered Roger (laughs) Hall. What? What did you say? I said your wife, Isabel Graham... Murdered Roger Holcomb. No. No. I did. What? The the truth is I murdered him. No plans are perfect. No man is infallible. Yes. I killed Roger Holcomb. And I had planned to dispose of Isabel for many months. I had never loved her. I had loved only science. And I wanted her money. And Holcomb found it out. That was the risk I ran. That any chance lie in his presence, either by Isabel or myself, would bring out the truth. And it did. I had no alternative once he discovered that. But to kill him... It was easy enough to throw the blame on Isabel, but I had not counted on that terrible compunction for the truth. That strange affliction of Roger Holcomb's and its power over me. Did it transfer itself at his death to me, or was it conscience? It is a pity that it had to end this way. It was a fascinating case. Next Thursday,
1: same time, you will hear Mr. Jack Carson as star of Suspense. Produced and directed by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California.
0: That will wrap up this episode of The Twilight Beacon, as well as our October run for 2022. The Twilight Beacon will return in 2023, with another season of Vintage Radio episodes to thrill you and chill you in the spirit of the spookiest season. In the meantime, you can follow The Twilight Beacon on our various social media accounts, or on your favorite podcast apps for programming updates and special one-off episodes during the off-season. Until next year, this is Jedidiah D. Blackwell saying good night, everyone, and good luck getting to sleep.
4: Thank you. For listening to this episode of the Twilight
1: Beacon podcast. New episodes are released on thetwilightbeacon.com
11: during the month of October and can be found on your favorite podcast apps and streaming services. The Twilight Beacon podcast is produced and
1: edited by Jason and Jacob Burgess, music by Alexander Nakarada. Special thanks to the Old Time Radio Researchers Group and OTRR.com. Visit thetwilightbeacon.com for archived episodes and a schedule of upcoming shows. You can follow The Twilight Beacon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest program updates.